Welcome back to another episode of the Bank Shop Podcast. I'm Kale. I'm Andrew. And as you know, recently the national championship um, was played. And I have to start out by saying I have a lot of crow to eat because all season I have been saying that um, I'm not going to predict Kirby Smart to beat Nick Saban until it happens in front of my eyes. And I had been consistently picking Alabama over Georgia all year, even going into this game. And, well, it finally happened. Nick Saban beat Alabama. Georgia wins their first national championship since 1980, 33-18. I want to start with Andrew. What are your general thoughts on this game before we get into more specific topics? So I'm happy for Kirby Smart. He finally was able to get over the hump and beat Alabama as Everyone that watched last week's episode knows I picked Georgia to win this game. I was rooting for them to win this game. I really wanted to see them win, and they did. They pulled it out. We talked a lot. Me and Bryce talked a lot about how they need to get pressure on Bryce Young uh, to win this game, and boy, did they do that. They had four sacks. They brought him down four times, and they were just in the backfield. It felt like every play. Bryce Young still, I'll give him credit, he made a lot of beautiful throws under pressure. I'll, I'm sure we'll get into that a little of the Alabama side a little bit later. But uh, Georgia's defense was incredible in this game. And then Stetson Bennett, despite the fumble, uh, I thought he was going to melt down after that. He led a really good game-winning drive at the end of the game where he threw the pass to Brock Bowers uh, in the flat on the left side. They win the game in the end. Uh, it really just a good a feel good story for a lot of the players on Georgia. I know a lot of people are mad that they won, but I was happy to see people like Stephen Bennett and uh, Keely Ringo, everything his story, uh, them come out on top. So yeah, that's what I wanted to get into first. Uh, Georgia's defensive line stepped up big time. They had four sacks and nine TFLs, like Andrew said, and that was the big key for Georgia winning this game. Uh, we've already highlighted on our Instagram page, Quay Walker had a ridiculous game, eight tackles, eight pressures. Uh, Channing Tindall, uh, eight tackles, a sack, and two TFLs. I mean, they were getting pressure from guys like Nolan Smith, um, their linebackers, and even Jordan Davis had a couple pressures this time. But that leads me into the ridiculous line uh, linebacker play on both of these uh, for both of these teams. Like I said, Quay Walker, Channing Tindall, um, Nakobe Dean, and then for Alabama, Christian Harris. So between Quay Walker, Nakobe Dean, and Christian Harris, do you think those are the three best linebackers in the draft class um, after their ridiculous national championship games? So I believe that Nakobe Dean is the best linebacker in this draft class. I've thought that for a few weeks. Uh, we'll make a deeper dive into this next week when we talk about our top prospects. But I do believe Nicobe Dean is the best linebacker in the draft. I don't, I don't, I just don't think uh, the other two are the second best. There's someone that I know you like a lot more, so I'll let you talk about him. But I, uh, Nicobe Dean is my best linebacker in the draft class for sure. So I do think um, that Nicobe Dean and Christian Harris are two of the best linebackers in the class. But I want to highlight a guy from Utah that maybe not as many people know about, Devin, uh, Devin Lloyd. I think because of how big of a program that N- Dean and Harris play for, obviously Georgia and Alabama, the two teams in the natty, Devin Lloyd has name has not been brought up enough, but Devin Lloyd is a ridiculous linebacker. He is all around the ball. He is a good athlete. He is good in coverage. Just a, a 
maybe the highest ceiling linebacker in this class and is the most complete linebacker. But I want to get more specifically on to the game. So clearly Georgia did win this game 33 to 18, and it was a staunchly different result from the one in the ACC championship. But the thing we can't go without saying is that Alabama was pretty much for this entire game uh, without their top two wide receivers, Jamison Williams tore his ACL, and then John Mechie tore his ACL in the first matchup between these two teams. Now, there's no such thing as like an asterisk ring or like a lucky ring. All of these are things that naturally happen in sports, and you're expected to overcome them to be champions. I've said this, you know, with the Bucks ring and it, with all sports. Like, if you want to put an asterisk on a ring, you could do it for every single uh, championship ever won. But I do want to ask you, how different is this game if Alabama does have both, if not both, then at least just Jamison Williams? Because the offense was performing really well when Jamison Williams uh, was still in the game. So I think there's two situations. Obviously, when you look at a game and you look at a team and you say, wow, they're missing their wide receiver one and two, they would have won. And it's a close game. You say they would have won if they had them. That's just a natural reaction. But when you do a dive into this game, there are two situations that directly lost them this game having to do with their wide receivers. The first, before the prior to Georgia blocking the kick in the fourth quarter, I think it was in the fourth quarter. It might have been the third. But late in the game, when Georgia blocks the kick and they end up scoring the Brock Bowers touchdown uh, after that, the reason it happened was because a guy Hall dropped a ball that hit him directly in the hands. Bryce Young, under pressure, uh, getting killed, throws it right over the corner, and the guy Hall lets it hit the ground, just straight up, bounce off his hand. And then the field goal gets blocked. Georgia scores seven. It's a 10-point swing right there. So that's a major turning point. And then even at the end, not even not even just a tip. That was probably a fourteen point swing because that that, that drop. Oh yeah, because they would have scored fantastically well. Yeah, and then you do the the another one that has to do a guy how again uh, right before the Keely Ringo interception, the pick six, <laughs> Bryce Young down the right sideline throws a beautiful pass to Guy Hall again. And instead of going to put two hands out for this pass that was right in the basket, he decided to throw one hand out, and it bounced right off his forearm, and he drops that. And then Keely Ringo, obviously, I think it was the next player, it was, it was during that drive, he houses a, a pick six. So it, if Alabama has their two wide receivers, or even one of them, because they both are very sure-handed, they're going to make those catches, and they're going to win this game. So I think it's a completely different game if Alabama has those two wide receivers. I don't think you can say otherwise, really. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's just... Jamison Williams alone would have made this a much different result. I mean, we've seen with the SEC championship, Alabama is probably the better football team still, but that's not what history is going to tell. Obviously, history is going to say that Georgia did win the national championship, but I just think it, it shouldn't go without saying that this is a very different ball game with Jamison Williams and John Mechie. But with that being said, congratulations to Georgia for winning the national championship. Um, and big things to come for that program, maybe, now that Curry Smart has gotten over the hump, or maybe this makes uh, Nick Saban furious and Alabama goes on a 26 feet. Who knows? But on to the NFL playoffs, which are starting today. Um, I just want to start out by going around the table and giving our first-round predictions for each um, playoff game. And I'm going to start with the – one that is the two that are today, um, the Raiders versus the Bengals. Andrew, first, what is your prediction for that game? So 
So I'm going to take the Raiders here. I'm going to pick the upset pick. A lot of people are really high on the Bengals this year because they're a really fun team to watch, and their offense is explosive, obviously. You have the LSU connection between Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase. T. Higgins is an amazing receiver. Uh, Tyler Boyd's a great slot receiver. Joe Mixon, everything. <laughs> so the Bengals definitely have a lot going for them. Uh, and obviously they have an actual head coach. Las Vegas still has the interim head coach. But I'm going to pick the Raiders to win this game. Uh, I trust Derek Carr in a playoff game right now. Uh, I, I do think that he's a very good quarterback. Some people have mixed opinions on him. I think that the Raiders are hot coming into this game. At one point they were out of the playoffs and they finished the season really strong and they were able to sneak in. They have – their wide receivers aren't super well-known, but Hunter Renfro is a really good wide receiver. Uh, he's an over 1,000-yard receiver. I think he's going to come up huge in this game. And I think the Raiders are going to make pivotal plays when they need to. I think Derek Carr will make the throws he needs. They just beat the Chargers last week in a playoff-esque game. Uh, it was a win and end, so it really is a playoff game. It's like a play-in game in the NBA, if you want to use that comparison. And they beat a Chargers team, who I think is better than a Bengals team, that they played this week. So I'm going to take the Raiders to win this game. Well, I'm going to go the opposite. I'm going to pick the Bengals because I just the Raiders have so much adversity they had to overcome just to make the playoffs. And when you are without – like, I mean, they're just without so much. They don't have a head coach. They're without their best wide receiver, obviously, Hunter Renfro, or excuse me, um, Henry Ruggs. And they, I mean, Nate Hobbs got a DUI. I don't know if he's playing this game. There's just so much that the Raiders have to overcome. And with their secondary being suspect, especially if Nate Hobbs doesn't play in this game, I think the Bengals are going to have a big day through the air like they usually do, and they're going to win this game. But on to the Patriots versus the Bills. Um, Andrew, what is your prediction for that game? I am not going to make the mistake that a lot of people are. I'm not going to bet against Bill Belichick, and I'm going to take the Patriots to win this game. In playoff football, a lot of times, and I know you, we've talked about it before, and it's a little overrated to be able to run the ball. Uh, but when it comes to the playoffs, you need to have a run game. We've seen it when the Bucks won last year. The Patriots, during their dynasty, were always able to run the ball because uh, when it gets cold, it's harder to throw the ball. The Bills, I don't think, are that good of a team. Their 11-6 and record, I think, is a little bit uh, – is honestly a lot better than I think that they are. Uh, I'm not going to bet against Bill Belichick. They obviously have the upper hand in the coaching department. Uh, Mac Jones is the only part of this game that really worries me. But on the flip side, Josh Allen is an amazing QB, but he has struggled in the playoffs throughout his career consistently. Even last year when they played the Ravens, uh, it was a windy game, granted, but he threw the ball poorly in that game. And we've seen him have meltdowns versus the Texans before earlier in his career in the playoffs. Uh, Mac Jones obviously doesn't have playoff experience, which is going to be interesting to watch, but he's going to be put in a situation where he doesn't have to be great to win this game. And I'm going to take the Patriots to win this game. Um, when these teams first met up, obviously it was like ridiculous weather conditions. And then after that game, I said, um, I think the Bills are a much better football team. And in a regular weather situation, I think they win this game. And that went on to happen. The Bills, I believe, beat the Patriots by multiple scores. It was like 30 some. Like I think they beat them by like 16. 12. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think the Bills are just straight up a better football team. And they have the much better quarterback. Even if Josh Allen has had meltdowns, he's still had pretty solid games in the playoffs as well. And he just overall has so much more experience than Matt Jones. I understand you don't bet against Bill Belichick or whatever, but I'm still I just think the Bills are a better football team than the Patriots, and I think they're going to win this game. Barring I don't know, uh, Gale Force wins again, where Matt Jones only has to throw three passes. 
But finally, onto the last wild card game in the AFC, the Steelers versus the Chiefs. Andrew, what is your prediction for this game? This game is going to be really ugly, and, and the Chiefs are going to blow out the Steelers by double digits, yeah. uh, probably three scores if I had to guess. I really don't think this Steelers team is good at all. I cannot believe they made the playoffs. Uh, Big Ben is obviously a shell of his former self. And he was bad last year, and he got even worse this year. And last year, I believe he threw five interceptions in his first in the in the wild card game. But last year doesn't matter. Just talking about this year, the Chiefs are the best team in football, in my opinion. Uh, they started the year rough, but they finished the year better than anyone could have even imagined. The way that they started, uh, Patrick Mahomes is by far the better quarterback in this game. The Chiefs have better coaching. They have a better. They have a better. Uh, most of their. Most of their defense is better. They don't have a better front seven. Uh, but the Chiefs are going to blow out the Steelers in this game. I don't see a way that this game is even close. Yeah, I don't think this game is going to be really too close either. I've seen um, Nick Broussard talking about that the Chiefs should rest like their super their superstars in this game. And I don't. I, I definitely wouldn't go that far. But the Chiefs are a significantly better football team than the Steelers. Um, and I do think they're going to dominate this game. But on to the NFC wild card, we have the Cardinals versus the Rams. I am most excited for this one. Uh, I think this is the best of the first round matchups. This one in the Raiders Bengals. The Rams are a much better team than the Cardinals. They, uh, I just on surface level, they're better in a lot of areas. I don't think I think DeAndre Hopkins is out for the playoffs as well. Um, I'm I don't think he's playing today. James Conner's back, and just – oh, Christian Kirk – It was J.J. Going, Watt as well. Yeah, but Christian Kirk is going to be covered by Jalen Ramsey, right? Yeah. <laughs> you would assume that he's going to be able to shut him down. So if you shut down Christian Kirk, then the Cardinals have to rely on a shell of his former self, A.J. Green, and a rookie, Rondell Moore, uh, all five foot, I think, eight of him. <laughs> so yeah, they have to – Yeah, they have to rely on a inexperienced player and a wash wide receiver to win this game for them. The only thing that worries me about the Rams is, obviously, when you look at this team on paper, they are one of the most talented teams in the NFL, if not the most talented. But Matt Stafford has never won a playoff game before. I believe he's only been in two. Um, and it's, it's scary when you have a quarterback that has so much inexperience in the playoffs. But the Cardinals and Kyler Murray don't either. So I think the Rams are going to come out on top in this game. Exactly. This is a weird game of inexperienced quarterbacks, one only being, what, a third-year player in Kyler Murray and the other being a very seasoned veteran and Matthew Stafford, both without um, playoff experience. So I think that part is funny. But I do think the Rams are a better football team than the Cardinals, pretty much top to bottom, especially without uh, DeAndre Hopkins playing. That's such an important player for the Cardinals offense. And the Cardinals just haven't looked good ever since. I think the the uh, the first COVID outbreak and then the game where they got dominated by the Panthers, I think that is just have been the downfall for the Cardinals because ever since then, that what was it seven eight oh eight no start, they just haven't looked nearly the same as they did then, and I do think the Rams are going to win. Matthew Stafford might make a few dumb mistakes and make this game closer than it should be, but I could also see the Rams pulling away. On to the Forty ers versus the Cowboys. I have the Cowboys coming out on top in this game. I think that they're going to blow out. The 49ers, uh, I'll, I'll say that. I don't think the 49ers are that good of a team. They finished the year well, obviously. Uh, they were better than they started. But I think the Cowboys are better at most positions on the football field. You look at the stud-edge rusher matchup in this one, I think that's the best uh, 
you know, position comparison between Nick Bosa and Micah Parsons. And that'll be fun to watch, obviously. But when you have a game between Dak Prescott, who is one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, top 10 definitely, versus Jimmy Garoppolo, uh, I just don't know how I can pick against uh, the Cowboys here. But Mike McCarthy, obviously Kyle Shanahan and Mike McCarthy, Kyle Shanahan is the better coach. Uh, but Mike McCarthy has playoff experience, just like Kyle Shanahan. They both do. Uh, Mike McCarthy's a Super Bowl winning head coach, you know, Aaron Rodgers, the quarterback. But that's besides the point. I think the Cowboys are a lot better than the 49ers, and I think they're going to win this game by 14 plus. Yeah, I think the Cowboys are going to beat the 49ers, but I actually think this game is going to be pretty close. Jimmy Garoppolo is a pretty just not great quarterback, but I'll give him credit where credit is due. He has managed to be pretty solid in the playoffs. Um, so I do think this is going to be a close game, but I do think the Cowboys win. And then on to just pretty much – well, I don't know. I would say, you know, a few weeks ago, pretty much another wash. But this game honestly could be interesting. The Eagles versus the Buccaneers. I have the Buccaneers winning this game. This is an interesting one. The Buccaneers I have going very deep into the playoffs in my playoff bracket. But the thing that concerns I, I think everyone is they faced a lot of injuries that – to key players like Chris Godwin and Leonard Fournette is out uh, today. It just got an, or not today, but uh, you know, this weekend, I think it got announced like an hour ago that he's not going to be available in this game, which playoff Lenny is a very real thing. So that's a big loss for the bucks. But I think that we've seen Lamar Jackson struggle in the playoffs because he, you know, teams focus on his running game. And when in the playoffs, you, you can't just rely on a quarterback's running game to win. And Jalen Hurts is still a bad thrower of the football. He's obviously a great runner. Everyone knew that he would be coming into this, uh, you know, coming into this year, coming into his career. But I, I think that the Buccaneers are going to be able to limit his running game really well. Obviously, their linebackers match up really well speed-wise. Devin White is one of the fastest and most athletic linebackers in the league. He's not... Uh, he has struggled this year in coverage, but that he, I expect them to spy him. And if he's able to limit Jalen Hurts, I think the Buccaneers are going to come out on top of this game, and that's what I think is going to happen. Yeah, um, the Buccaneers are going to win this game, but I do think it's going to be a lot closer because the reason is, like Andrew said, they're just decimated with injuries. And I don't think the Buccaneers are going to get out of the next round uh, pretty much no matter what team they end up playing. I just don't see, you know, doubting Tom Brady and Bill Belichick in the same postseason I know um I'm making a lot of bad bets here but I just don't see how Tom Brady can overcome just such an injury riddled Buccaneers roster that had already been showing a few holes opening up even without um even without all the injuries earlier this season but that is the first round we will continue to monitor the playoffs and predict every round coming all the way into the Super Bowl obviously but now into the NBA it's been one of the busiest weeks uh, in the NBA in a while. And I want to start out with, obviously, the most monumental part of this past NBA news segment. Uh, Clay Day, Clay Thompson, made his return, and now he has played in a few games. Um, first, I want to talk about the specific return of Clay Thompson versus the Cavaliers, and then I want to talk about his um, his return to the NBA in general over the last few games. So, Andrew, uh, what were your thoughts on his games versus the Cavs specifically first? So, the very first game that he came back, I expected him to be a little inefficient. You know, he hadn't played basketball in over two and a half years. I was more looking for his, like, how his body more was, like, how, how his athleticism was affected. And, 
you know, he, he played pretty well for not playing in two and a half years. 17 Exactly, points. yeah. I was not expecting him to play good at all. And his first game back, albeit, was a pretty good game. Exactly. He put up 17 points in 20 minutes. Granted, like I said, he was inefficient, but that's what you expect for a player that hasn't played in two and a half years. You, you don't expect him to be hitting his shots right away. The thing that made me happy uh, to see was he was aggressive. He was shot hunting. He wasn't, you know, just sitting in the corner and being a spot-up shooter. He was looking for shots. He was attacking the basket. Uh, you know, he even dunked on someone. Yeah, he postered like two Cavaliers and he hadn't played basketball in pushing 1,000 days. That was insane. Exactly. So his offensive game definitely looked uh, really good in this game. Not really good, but it looked really good for the first time in two years. And then he, on the defensive side, I hate to be a downer because everyone loves Clay Thompson and it was really fun watching him play. But he was visibly slow, like lateral quickness wise. And he was getting B a lot. He was not good on the defensive end. But you would hope that, that over time he will get more adjusted to the NBA. So as a first game, you have to, as the Warriors, you have to be happy with what you saw out of Clay Thompson. Yeah, but now what I don't know if they'll be specifically happy about is his um, next couple games. Now, I understand. I'm not going to sit here and hark on Clay Thompson too much because, like I said, he is pushing 1,000 days without playing basketball. But so far, his season is 14 points per game, uh, about three rebounds, two assists on 47% true shooting, which that goes without saying. It's not very good. 35, 36% from the field, 35% from the three-point line. Now, this is multiple things. One, you could say that Clay Thompson is going to be a worse basketball player, which may end up and likely could end up being correct. I'm not going to doubt that. But also just the rhythm in shooting and playing in the NBA game. I mean, I, I, like I said, he not play basketball in a thousand days. Like I'm going to give him like a month and a half, right? And if we're getting into like March and he's still shooting just as bad, now I think it starts to become a severe problem. But right now he just has to get the rhythm of the game, the rhythm of the shot and start to see a few get in, and then, you know, Clay Thompson can heat up. He just has to readjust his body and his shot to the NBA, live-action NBA game. Um, but look, I'm going to give him a while, but this to say this could be the Clay Thompson we're going to get uh, for the rest of the season, and, like, just this is the um, mean for Clay Thompson – that could also end up very likely being correct. But what are your thoughts on his season so far? People were really – so people often, when players come off injury, don't think that they're going to lose a single step because we've seen players do it before. Uh, shameless Kevin Durant, shout out here. Obviously, he came back and was the same. But when you have an injury like Clay and you have a, an ACL and a Achilles injury, you have to be a little weary. We've seen DeMarcus Cousins, it happened to him, and he completely lost his defensive game. Like, Boogie was a solid defender in his prime, and then he had those two injuries, and he is one of the worst defenders in the NBA. He is unrosterable at this point for a lot of teams. So that was the thing I wanted to look for in Klay Thompson the most over these past three, four games. Uh, and he has been really bad defensively from the eye test standpoint. I don't really know what his advanced stats are. I doubt they're available because it's such a small sample size. You need a little bit more. But he has been really bad on defense for the Warriors. He's getting beat constantly. Uh, he can't defend quicker guards like on the perimeter. He gets he, he just gets blown by a lot. And I think that's something that has to be a watching point for this Warriors team because 
when Clay was in his prime, obviously everyone loves the Splash Bros. Everyone loves how good he was shooting threes. But the thing that made him so impactful was he was one of the best wing slash guard defenders in the NBA. Uh, he was an all NBA or all defensive type player, and that's what you want out of Clay Thompson if you're the Warriors. That's what you need out of Clay Thompson if you're the Warriors. And he just hasn't had that so far, which I think is something that you have to like be scared about. Obviously, I like you said, I'll give him a month. I, I'm sure he really cares what I think. But I think <laughs> after a month, you have to, you know, evaluate how he's looked. And his defense has been really bad. Like, he had the block, obviously. Oh, fun. But uh, that's, like, the focal point for me. That's what I'm most worried about because I'm confident he'll get his shot back. But his defensive game has to improve. So our next topic is the Bucks versus the Nets. The Bucks dominated the Nets, um, one twenty-one to one hundred and nine. And if you remember, this is the game that we predicted last episode. Now it has been a little bit ago, but you know we're not ESPN. We can't do uh, these every day and cover every game immediately. But um, like I said, Andrew's the resident Nets fan, and I am the resident Bucks fan. So I want to get your thoughts on the Nets in this game first, and then I'll give mine for the Bucks. So my biggest takeaway here was the net spacing uh, has been really, really, really bad. They, <laughs> Patty Mills goes one for six in this game, which obviously he's supposed to be their best three-point shooter, best spot of three-point shooter uh, that's healthy, and that's going to kill your team. They shoot 22% from three, and as a whole, the Nets have really struggled from three ever since Joe Harris left and or, or got hurt. He, he broke his ankle, obviously he got surgery, he's coming back soon. But I, I think people undervalued the impact of him, me being one of them. I thought that he would be relatively replaceable with a guy like Patty Mills. Uh, but he, he hasn't been. Their team three-point percentage, I believe they were the stat is they were top five in team three-point percentage when Joe Harris got hurt. And then ever since they – like when he was playing, obviously. And then since he's got hurt, they are a bottom 10 three-point shooting team in the league, which is pretty telling. Uh, they roll out lineups sometimes without Joe Harris, you know, when he's hurt. They roll up a lineup of James Harden and then either Javon Carter or one of the rookies, David Duke Jr., whoever, pick your choice. They're both bad shooters. Bruce Brown, uh, James Johnson slash Paul Millsap and Nick Claxton. And no one in that lineup can shoot. Uh, even James Harden this year has struggled from three. He's shooting like 33%. Obviously, he provides spacing. But when he can't hit a shot, there is not a single player on the court at that time that can hit a three-point shot and that really kills the net so they're definitely missing joe harris they're obviously missing kyrie irving but i'm not even going to dive into that because no one knows what that situation is no one knows what's going to happen there so i don't even think it's worth wasting time talking about really uh but the nets got dominated in this game i don't even think a 12 point uh difference is telling enough because you know the backups got put in and cam thomas uh scored a bunch of points and made it closer but they definitely got dominated in every facet of this game. I don't want to be the type of person to say, like, oh, the Nets shot 22%, so they beat themselves, like ESPN loves to say. They love to never admit that the Nets lose a game. Another team beat them. It's always the Nets beat themselves. Uh, but the Bucks dominated them here. They dominated them really in every facet, and, uh, you know. That is something that I always think is really funny, um, not just with the Nets, but specifically the Bucks. When the Bucks beat, like, a, you know, the contending, like, big market teams, like the Nets and the Warriors, it's never, um, hey, what a good win for the Bucks. It's what went wrong for the big market team. Like, it almost never fails, and I think that's pretty funny. But, yeah, um, Giannis dominates the Nets again. 
which is what I predicted would happen. It's not even um, – I don't even think it's a fair thing to predict anymore because it's basically just what's going to happen. I, it's like – I believe it's eight games in a row um, scoring 30-plus points versus the Nets, which is the longest streak versus any specific team uh, tied with Shaquille O'Neal. So it's becoming a real problem for the Nets that – I mean, listen, to win the NBA championship, you're going to have to play Giannis – and that's just a thing that you're really struggling with. And even the other bigs, like Bobby Portis, had a really good game. Like you said, 20, uh, 25 points, um, 9 of 16 from the field, 2 of 5 from 3. Giannis was also 2 of 5 from 3. He, something about playing the Nets just makes Giannis a solid three-point shooter, in the regular season specifically. But I, I don't think the Nets are really going to get out of this hole unless they get a player – or a couple players, really, to specifically guard Giannis Antetokounmpo. Because I said in the offseason, um, through the draft and through the free agency period, they didn't get that. I mean, you would think the guy who averages like 37 points versus um, the general roster you've constructed over the past two years, you would think that would be enough to make you um, at least sign a single player with any type of um, – any that that could guard Giannis whatsoever, but the Nets just consistently have not done that, and they will continue to get dominated by Giannis in the regular season and the playoffs until they get a player uh, or players to stop him. But um, nice transition here because the Bucks and the Nets dominate the number one seeds in each respective conference over this past week. The Nets go on a ridiculous run to beat the Bulls. So I'll start out there, Andrew. You could take the lead on that one. But I just do want to say that um, what was the run 47 to 10 after being tied uh, 71 to 71? Yep, it was 71 71. Uh, I'm going to be brutally honest here. The Nets started that run and they went up like 10 and I went to sleep because it was late and I was tired. I live on the East Coast and it was like 12 o'clock and I had school the next day. But uh, obviously I, I rewatched the game because I wouldn't be fit to talk about it if I didn't. So I did. And it was 71-71, like you said, and the Nets go on this massive, massive run. James Harden had one of the best playmaking performances that I've ever seen out of him. Uh, there was a graphic. Hold on. I'll pull it up in a second. But uh, while I pull it up, James Harden just made Dayron Sharp. I, I heard Kenny, you know, Kenny, or KOT4Q. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you know him that listen to this. I heard him talk about this, and I thought it was really well put. He made Dayron Sharp look like Shaquille O'Neal in this game. I mean, Dayron Sharp is a great rebounding rookie, but he's not supposed to be anything else. And I, what did he put up, 20 points in this game? It was versus 20 Bulls and team? 7. He put up 20 and 7 in this game versus Bulls team. Uh, James Harden had 16 assists in this game. Uh, which alone is crazy. But then if you look at the assist breakdown, only three of them, here it is, uh, only three of them went to Kevin Durant. None of them went to Kyrie Irving. He had five assists to Dayron Sharp, three to Kessler Edwards, two to Patty Mills, one to DeAndre Bembry, Blake Griffin, and James Johnson, uh, which I think is a huge thing because when you, you know Kyrie can make his own shot, Kevin Durant can make his own shot, you don't have to worry about a primary playmaker uh, to make shots for them. But these other players, they can't. But they can score, but they're not going to be able to create their own shot. And James Harden did a really good job in this game, uh, you know, distributing the ball. Kevin Durant, on the, when you talk about him, he went uh, crazy in this third quarter. He did not – it felt like he could not miss a single 
shot that he took. Uh, it just felt like he, he was hitting everything. He goes 7 for 10 in this game. 27 points on 10 shots. That is a Kevin Durant special. That's just something that you don't see very often. It's kind of ridiculous, honestly. Um, but he he was great. Kyrie Irving, like he struggled. He didn't even put up double-digit points, but his impact was definitely there. You could see teams have to guard him closer than they have to guard Patty Mills. You know, they put more emphasis on it. So the Nets were clicking on all cylinders. The stat that I saw is when the big three play together, they're 13-3, and three, which obviously 16 games over about – I think it's about a year now since James Harden got traded. Uh, it's probably roughly a year, maybe a year and like a quarter. Uh, so only playing 16 games in that span is obviously worrisome. But when you look at that and you say, okay, when they play these away games in the playoffs, right? And they're 13-3, and and Kyrie plays. The Nets are still a scary team when they have the big three together. Let me say, we never know if that's going to happen. You know, there's a lot of situations going on. But I think when, you know, I personally know someone, uh, I know a lot of people that are like, no one is scared of this Nets big three. No one is like, I don't want to play them, which just isn't true. Because if you say that you don't think that this team with Kyrie Irving, James Harden, and Kevin Durant, when all three of them play in a hypothetical situation where they're all playing, and you don't think that they can beat anyone in the NBA, you're straight up lying. Uh, so that's my thoughts on the game. It was refreshing to finally see them beat a top eight seed in the NBA. Uh, that leads me into my next thing. This is the first time the Nets this season have beaten a team over 600 at the time they play. This makes them one in eight. So, Andrew, I want to ask you, do you think this has redeemed their sins in any way, and do you think this is a turning point for the Nets versus these contending teams? I don't think it's a turning point. I don't think that there was really, a, like, a, a mental block for any of them. I don't think Kevin Durant or James Harden were going out there and were like, wow, we really suck versus these teams. We can't beat them. So I think it's more of a turning point for people, like fans and people who watch the NBA, uh, because when the Nets are just James Harden and Kevin Durant, they're good. Don't get me wrong. They're a good team. They can still win playoff series. They can still win the NBA Finals, but they're definitely not favorites. But when this team is together and all three of them, they're still one of the scariest teams in the NBA, if not the scariest. So I think it's like a major telling point. Like uh, the, the big three is still ridiculously good when they play together. And it's telling that if Kyrie Irving plays in every playoff game or half of playoff games, Regardless when they're together, they're capable of beating anyone, and it really is a major thing to watch. You know, getting Kyrie back would be huge for the scene. I still don't know if I fully believe in the Nets yet. And like I said, we're talking a lot about Kyrie Irving, but he still only had nine points in this game. So I don't know if this was more of the effect of having the big three or was it just, one, a ridiculous run by the Nets, and then on the flip side, a ridiculous cold streak by the Bulls. Um. Obviously, I still think that the Nets are finals contenders, but well, being one and eight versus these like legitimate contending teams, um, well, or above six hundred teams, I don't know if the Jazz or anything like that people consider them like legitimate finals contenders still. But anyways, being like one and eight, I don't think that that's just something that you could shake a stick at, even without um, Kyrie Irving for half the games, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I still think that is should be a concerning thing versus the Nets, not mentally, but just on paper is our basketball roster, is our basketball team, can they go out here and beat these legitimate teams when it matters most? Now, clearly having Kyrie Irving in a rhythm back, same thing with Clay Thompson, Kyrie Irving 
has not played in an NBA game for um, a year. So I will give Kyrie Irving time to get back in rhythm. But with that being said, playing half the games, it'll be much harder for Kyrie Irving than it will for, you know, someone like Clay Thompson. But I do think that should be a concerning thing for the Nets. Um, still, even after this was a fantastic game played by them. But between this game and the Warriors blowing out the Bulls, did the Bulls get exposed even as they still sit as the one seed in the East? I don't think that I, I don't think they got exposed. I don't quite uh, believe that. So they are they were a really good defensive team to start the seasons. Uh, again, I'm gonna reference uh, KOT for you here. He said, great teams uh, are good on both offense and defense. You know, good teams can win by just offensive. Uh, the Bulls were really good. I believe they were a top 10 offensive and defensive team to start the year. And then they lose Alex Caruso, who really, I mean, when you look at it, you're like, oh, Alex Caruso, how big can he be? Uh, losing Alex Caruso really was a vital loss for this Bulls team. Their defense has gotten significantly worse. He's a really good guard defender. Not just um, Caruso, but also Derek Jones Jr., yeah. who is their really only legitimate wing defender. And they lose him in this next game. I don't know how hurt he is. Uh, I didn't see any reports on how. It's like a month, I think. Okay. So I, if they get both of them back, uh, Alex Caruso is coming back like, relatively soon. So it's not like he's going to be out. If they get both of them back, I think they'll be fine. Uh, but without those two, their defense is really bad. And without those two, they cannot win a playoff series. So I don't like to think that they got exposed. But it is uh, a little worrisome that they rely on those two role players so much. Zach Levine, I also want to point out, uh, yesterday, I believe, in the game, I think they played yesterday. Yeah, um, he gets hurt. <laughs> and that is a major issue, obviously, because Zach Levine is, if, you know, he's the second best player on this team. Some people think he's the best. Uh, he's a major scoring factor for this team. And without him, it, you know, they're in trouble. He hurts his knee. So that's something to monitor. But I still think the Bulls are a really good team. Do I think they're the best team out of the East? No. Do I think they're the second best team out of the East? No. Uh, but to say they got exposed, I, I, I don't agree with it. I haven't believed in the Bulls fully. I do think the Bulls are a really fun team to watch. But when it comes to, did I think the Bulls' number one seed truly reflected the fact that they are the cream of the crop in the East? I never once thought that. Like Andrew said, I don't think they're the best. I don't think they're the second best. And I don't think they're the third best either, frankly. Um, the Bulls are a really fun team. And the style of basketball they play can win them a lot of regular season games. But when it comes to the playoffs, when you have to be elite on both sides of the ball to truly get where you want to go, the NBA Finals, I don't believe in the Bulls to do that. And I've never really taken the Bulls as seriously as final contenders as their record would reflect them as. But in this weird uh, triangle of teams between the Nets, Bucks, Warriors, and Bulls, we finally get to the end of it with the Bucks just thrashing the um, Warriors. The score doesn't reflect how bad it was, and the score is still pretty out of hand, 118 to 99. But keep in mind, the Bucks led 77 to 38 um, at halftime, which is the worst halftime deficit the Warriors have had since they relocated to the state of California. But, Andrew, what were your thoughts on this game? My biggest takeaway from this game, obviously, the Bucks are dominant. The Bucks are really good. The Bucks are one of the best teams in the NBA, if not the best. But Draymond Green's impact is unmeasurable. <laughs> he obviously doesn't play in this game. And 
that is a major loss for them. He would have probably been the primary defender on Giannis. You would assume that's what they would have done. And he is a major point in their offense. He's one of their primary playmakers. He touches the ball all the time. The offense, it doesn't run through him necessarily, uh, but it, he definitely has a major impact in running the offense. So the Warriors absolutely need Draymond Green. Uh, his impact was shown. And Steph Curry struggles again. I don't want to keep harping on the whole Steph Curry, Steph Curry, Steph Curry, you know, sucks thing. But it's undeniable that he has another really bad game and the Warriors get absolutely blown out. If Steph continues to play like this uh, through the playoffs, the Warriors are not going to make a deep run into the, um, you know, into the finals. And he needs to be better. So with Drew Holiday's absence in this game, the Bucks' starting point guard was none other than Giannis Antetokounmpo. And point Giannis really showed up in this game. He posted his third triple-double of the season with 30, 12, and 11 assists. And I think it was surprisingly Kendrick Perkins who said a really good quote. He's, he said the great players can get theirs, but the best players can get theirs and get others involved. And the evolution of Giannis, which has seemed to never end throughout his NBA career, is getting towards what has to be a basketball peak because Giannis is going out and getting you 30, 40 points. But now he's also getting guys like Grayson Allen, Dante DiVincenzo, Bobby Portis, Wesley Matthews with just really good playmaking and ridiculous passes. What I got away from this game, obviously, was more from how good the Bucks are and less um, how much the Warriors are struggling. But I think it's games like this that really show why Giannis Antetokounmpo is the best basketball player on the planet. I mean, he is impacting winning at the highest level on all four aspects of the game um, on a basic level. He's scoring you a lot of points, uh, third in the NBA in points per game. He's getting you double-digit rebounds. He is getting you um, a good amount of assists, 11 today, and averages a career-high seven on the season, I believe. And he is one of, if not the best, defender in basketball. So it's really becoming just the all-around complete game in a LeBron James-esque package for Giannis. Um, His outside shot is obviously still not the best, but he has become a really solid mid-range shooter, and he is shooting 70% from the free throw line on the year. But it, that's my biggest takeaway from this game was just how unbelievably dominant he was on every aspect of the game and just why he is, in my opinion, truly the best basketball player in the NBA. It was. It's definitely – he did absolutely dominate the Warriors. I, I still don't think he's the best player in the NBA, but I think he's definitely number two, and I don't see how anyone has him not in their top two at this point. I don't think Seth Curry is – quite close to Giannis, honestly. I don't think LeBron is. I don't think Jokic is. Uh, but, yeah, I, 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 he really is. His evolution just never stops, like you said. And it'll be really fun to see where he, uh, you know, obviously finishes his career in the all-time standings at this point. So the Grizzlies did lose a pretty bad game to the Dallas Mavericks last night, but that's not what I want, that is not what I want to focus on. That ended a ridiculous Grizzlies run where they were, I believe, what, 19-3 and three in their past 22 games. Uh, I, they made that 19-3 and three in their past 23 games, being the Timberwolves. The, the Grizzlies are at an all-time peak right now, or at least they were. They had beaten teams like the Warriors, the Lakers, the Cavs, the Nets, the Suns, the Lakers again. 
Um, they've beaten the Warriors multiple times and the Suns multiple times, which are the only team in basketball who could say they have done that. John Morant is looking like an MVP candidate. Now, he's not He's not in the stratosphere of Katie, Jokic, Giannis, etc., but he is down there uh, definitely making a case for his name to be on the ballot at worst. But I just want to ask you, how legitimate do you think that this Memphis Grizzlies team is? I think they are a really legit team. Uh, I, I don't think they're contenders necessarily this year. But in the coming years, like the next few years, I think this is going to be – I think we're watching the creation of a super team in front of our eyes. You know, Maybe not a super team because they don't have the superstars, but just a really, really, really good contender where they have perfect role players, great players all around with their superstar, uh, John Morant, leading them. I mean, Jaron Jackson Jr. has been great ever since he came into the NBA. The only worry has ever been his fouling issue and his health, and both of those things are not an issue this year. It's not really worrisome. And uh, I just want to say that Jaron Jackson Jr. at the center position for the Memphis Grizzlies has been ridiculously good and has affected just every aspect of their team. When he plays center, John Morant is so much better, especially driving to the paint. Desmond Bain is really good. When you have so much spacing with Jaron Jackson Jr. at the five, and he is such a good defender at the five, that truly unlocks a Memphis Grizzlies team that is phenomenal. Exactly. He, uh, he he really is a great player. I think he's really underrated. I think he's an all-star level caliber, you know, all-star caliber player uh, that doesn't get talked about enough. But then you go into, like you uh, alluded to, Desmond Bain has been on an absolute tear over the stretch. He's averaging 18 points per game. He's only, uh, you know, he's only 23 years old. Uh, obviously, Jaron Jackson Jr. is super young. John Morant is super young. This team is so scary, and they have just perfect role players everywhere. They can beat anyone in a playoff series. The only thing that worries me is their inexperience, obviously, and I, I don't think that they're truly quite contenders yet, but I do. This is a team. I mean, obviously, the Nets aren't in the West, but if my favorite team is in the West, this is definitely a team I'd want to avoid because I don't want to have to face them in the playoffs. Now, you say you don't think the Memphis Grizzlies are truly contenders yet. And on the flip side, I think this can be this year's Suns team, the team that came out of nowhere and makes a really deep run, whether it's a Western Conference. I don't, I, I'm not going to pencil in the Grizzlies as my finals team but if the Grizzlies find themselves in the finals would I be surprised honestly no I think the Memphis Grizzlies can at least be a Western Conference finals team and if they play a team I don't know say the Warriors they have shown multiple times over the past two seasons and especially this year that they could beat the Warriors on any night and at this point, it may look like they're the better team than the Warriors. The Grizzlies have inched themselves all the way up to 30 wins, which is the three seed in the Western Conference, and they're only four games back from the Suns and two and a half games back from the Warriors. But I think this Memphis Grizzlies team, like I said, can make a really deep run in the playoffs, and I think they are a really, really good basketball team especially in the future when all these young guys who are already great get even better. I have seen people saying that um, John Morant could be the best player in the NBA at some point in his career, which I don't necessarily know if I'd go that far, but he could be one of them, honestly.
I, I, he definitely can. I think that Zion, barring if he plays, will be better. Giannis is obviously only 27 years old. Uh, so there's him, Luca, but Jaws definitely on a trajectory to be a top five player in the NBA at one point in his career. He's really exciting. Uh, I think that all the people that were on the, the Grizzlies are better without John Morant. Train can oh, finally shut up. So just, it was already stupid to start with, but yeah. that is just in the dirt now. Exactly. But, um, on to our next topic, which is Damian Lillard. He is expected to be out from six to eight weeks, but many around the league believe that after his reevaluation in those six to eight weeks that the Portland Trailblazers are just going to go ahead and shut him down for the rest of the season. What does this mean for Portland and Damian Lillard? They should blow it up. <laughs> I'm just going to start off with that. They are going to be really bad. This team – or do you, if you're a Blazers fan, do you trust CJ McCollum to win a single playoff game for you, even a play-in game? No. Well, uh, see, I, I wasn't I, – I didn't think they should go for the playoffs, honestly. I think they should let their young guys like Anthony Simons, who has been really good recently, and just kind of take like a back year, kind of like what the Warriors did, where you have a star point guard who is hurt, and you let the young role players get significant minutes now, and you be bad on purpose. I mean, they could be aiming for, what, uh, a top-five pick, which um, their first-round pick belongs to the Bulls unless it is in the lottery. So, clearly, it looks like that the um, Trailblazers are going to get that pick. But if you get a top pick, you can make that splash trade for the um, superstar or all-star alongside Damian Lillard. Or you could draft, you know, someone really good. And you could let us – go ahead. The issue I have with that is uh, Yusuf Nurkic is obviously a crucial part of this team, and he's really good, and he's going to be hard to replace. And he is on the final gear of his deal. So I think they have to, at the very least, trade him away uh, because you can't get nothing for him, and you're not going to do anything this year. Uh, So they have to – I think they have to trade him. Uh, CJ McCollum is going to be virtually impossible to trade because of how awful his contract is. But uh, I think that the Blazers have to focus on either extending Nurkic before the trade deadline. And if they don't work out a deal, I think they have to trade him away. Like you said, uh, many around the league believe that CJ McCollum is a negative asset at this point. So I think that you don't trade him. But say someone like Anthony Simons does continue to look really good. Um, He could have a high um, value on the market or you could just keep him. Um, you know, Damian Lillard is older, and if you don't want to completely blow up your future, um, don't trade away Anthony Simons. But I think this is what the Portland Trailblazers needed. I mean, obviously they weren't going to contend this year, but Damian Lillard was going to keep uh, was going to win them just enough games to be a play in or the back end of the playoff team, which you're just not getting anything out of that. I think Damian Lillard being out for the season, honestly in the long term, would make the Portland Trailblazers a better team next year. And maybe you could finally get back to contending. And if it doesn't work then, then, then you blow it up. Then you let your guys like Anthony Simons take over. You trade away Dame. You trade away uh, Nurkic if you re-sign him. You just completely overhaul the um, franchise. But I do want to bring up, um, finally – uh, Anthony Simons, how good he has been. He Over the past two weeks, which is how uh, roughly how long Damian Lillard has been out, he's averaging 28 points per game on 51% shooting and 45% from three. He is 50-45-95 club. 
uh, over the past two weeks without Damian Lillard, which is obviously ridiculously good. Um, so I think his development and then what you can get out of that high pick, top five pick, if you end up being that bad, uh, can end up making the Portland Trailblazers better uh, for next season. He he really has impressed. I think uh, that's a major, you know, benefit uh, out of this whole Damian Lillard situation. If you want to take away a good thing, is the development of Anthony, Anthony Simons. There we go. Um, but yeah, I think that they probably keep him uh, even when Dame comes back next year. I think it's he's better than Jordan Poole, uh, but I think it could be a little similar to the Jordan Poole situation in Golden State. Uh, that's just like my thought. I think he'd be a great six man for this team when Dame comes back. And, uh, yeah, it has been nice to see him ball out for the Blazers. And then, finally, I just want to talk about how good Kyle Kuzma surprisingly has been for the Wizards, especially over the past few games. Um, Kyle Kuzma, you have the uh, stretch of games if you want to read that off real quick. Yeah, so Kyle Kuzma, you know, he obviously received a lot of hate for the, uh, when he was a Laker, but the past few games specifically, like Kale said, for the Wizards, the past eight games, Kyle Kuzma uh, has scored 29 points, five rebounds, 27 points, 22 rebounds, 21, 11, 24, and 9, 36, and 14, 29, and 12, 25, and 10, and 22, and 7 all while shooting 54% over that span. So if you take that stretch of games and you take out the name and you don't tell anyone who it is, that is a ridiculous stretch. He has genuinely been an all-star level player over this past stretch. Obviously not an all-star level player over the season, but Kyle Kuzma is really like, you know, molding into this really good player for this Wizards team. Uh, it's interesting to, to watch, you know, a player that so many people hated and so many people bashed constantly break out of his shell and just be truly an all-star level player over the past 10 games. It's really fun to watch. And it's just another example of young players getting away from the Lakers in the past few years, just becoming better. Brandon Ingram, Lonzo Ball, those are the big two examples. Julius Randle is another big example. Now Kyle Kuzma, even Montrezl Harrell and KCP are looking, especially Montrezl Harrell, are looking better with the Wizards. So it's it's just interesting to see how these Lakers rosters end up being formed over the past two seasons and what happens when they break them up. And it'll make you wonder about the players this year. But that does bring you back to the Wizards trade for Russell Westbrook. And with how bad, and I mean bad, like, look, we made a promise to stop talking about him for a while, but Russell Westbrook has been a special type of bad Um over his past three games, uh, I'm not going to bring up the um, shooting splits over these last three games. He is shooting 20% from the field, 0% from three, and then 70% from the three-point line. This is seven points per game. Um, what With looking back uh, now with um, hindsight, do you think the Wizards won the Russell Westbrook trade? I, I have to say 100%. If you look at the situation the two teams are in, uh, the Wizards are obviously thrilled 
with what they got out of Kyle Kuzma, and the Lakers are already trying to trade away Russell Westbrook. Granted, I don't think Kyle Kuzma would have broken out if he was still with the Lakers, but the Lakers wouldn't have the horrendous, horrendous contract of Russell Westbrook that they're trying to move. Uh, Like you said, this has been one of the worst I've ever seen a supposed-to-be all-star caliber player have. Uh, and he's clearly not that anymore, by the way. But that's what he's supposed to be. That's what some people think he still is. And it's really, I think the Wizards at this point fleece the Warriors. I'm willing to say that. Yeah, and I seen something today that was really funny. If you look at the new 2K range, Russell Westbrook is an 81 overall, and Kyle Kuzma is an 82 overall. Um, so it seems like at least on 2K that the Wizards got the better player out of the situation. But, yeah, the Lakers reportedly are trying to move off of Russell Westbrook and make uh, midseason moves to be real contenders again. But Russell Westbrook is an unmovable contract. Literally the only matching situation is John Wall, and we're not just going to keep swapping Russell Westbrook and John Wall and see if it works. Um, I I really don't – I mean, there's people who are better with the trade machines than I am, and maybe there's a way to put a trade together for Russell Westbrook for decent players that are not John Wall, like uh, three-team trades or something along those lines. But I just don't see a Russell Westbrook trade existing, and I think the Lakers are stuck with the roster that they sworn by in the offseason. Yeah, there's just nothing. I don't think they can do anything. I think they're going to be stuck with them as well. But that's about all we have for this week. Um, we're getting – to um, the end of football season, which is sad. Football is my favorite sport, but obviously basketball, we love to talk about basketball on this podcast as well. So we keep you updated. I'm excited to follow the NFL playoffs uh, as they go on, and we'll see you guys. See you guys next week.